Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. You are listening to Radio Islam at WCV 1450 AM. We are streaming live at www.wcv1450.com. And I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. Uh, yes, the voice is sounding a little rough. Uh, fighting off a bug, so keep me in your prayers. Uh, oh, yeah, real quick. I got to give a quick shout out to Sugar Bliss. Uh, thanks for for keeping us uh, exercising because your food is so good that uh, we must exercise afterwards. Um, no, they're, they're great folks. All right, folks, uh, Radio Sound family, we're going to be talking uh, with Miko Pellet. Uh, he is an Israeli writer and human rights activist living in the U.S. He was born and raised in Jerusalem. Uh, he's considered by many to be one of the clearest voices calling for justice in Palestine, uh, boycott, divestment, and sh- sanctions uh, known by, the, uh, uh, by BD- BDS, uh, and the creation of a single democracy with equal rights on all of historic Palestine. Uh, Pellet has just completed a second book, uh, Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. The book describes the persecution and then the closure of what was America's largest Muslim charity organization, the Holy Land Foundation, and the subsequent trials and convictions of five Palestinian Muslim Americans. Uh, Pulitzer Prize journalist Chris Hedges wrote, Miko Pellet shines a light on one of the most egregious cases of injustice committed to date against Muslim leaders in the United States. Um, Miko, do we have you online? Yes, you do. I'm right here. Thanks. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So, you know, I actually, I gave you all, and I should tell you right now, you can go to his website uh, to see uh, a bit more of his bio. I really gave you a really truncated version. Uh, and there's a lot more with regard to his first book, but I wanted to just get right into talking about this book and to talking about uh, to talking about why you do uh, what you do. So um, if you would give everybody your website real quick, that would be great. Mikopelled.com. Uh, very simple. My name, M-I-K-O-P-E-L-E-D.com. Okay. Uh, best place. Uh, people can follow me on Facebook, too. Uh, a lot of my stuff is on Facebook, on my page as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so what, what prompted what prompted this book? Well, what prompted the book was uh, a story that I heard. I was uh, I was um, actually speaking about uh, my first book, The General Sun. It had just come out. It was about 2012, late 2012, uh-huh. and I was in Dallas speaking. And after my talk, a couple of the student activists came up to me, and um, two of them were daughters of uh, the Holy Land Foundation Five. Uh-huh. And they told me the story uh, about the the Holy Land Foundation, about their their fathers, about what happened, um, and um, and that prompted the whole thing. And then I began investigating some more. Another activist from Dallas, um, a friend of mine, you know, started sending me information. This was right after their uh, appeal was denied, and so there was a lot of information out there. Um, and I decided after meeting the families uh, several months later. Um, that this was something that I uh, I should write a book about. I had no idea how to do it because the story is so complex. Uh, it has so many different layers um, and so many difficult issues to 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 deal with. You know where to start. Why did they? Why were they targeted? Was it true? Was it not true? Are they innocent? You know, was the was, is the U.S. government um, right in convicting them or not? I had to meet with the. I met with their lawyers. I met with the families. I met them in prison. All but one. I met in prison. Um, several times, I um, I met people who worked with the Holy Land Foundation in Palestine over the years. Of course, you know this is 
going back a long time ago, so it was hard to get people to talk. It was hard to get people to remember. It was hard to get people to want to remember because this was such a painful uh, process, not only for the Arab and Muslim community here in the U.S., but also for Palestinians in, in uh, Palestine because Holland did so much important work right. and gave so much to Palestinians, and so many people relied on them and worked with them that um, when they were taken down, it was, it was a real trauma. Um, so that's what prompted it. I mean, just the need to tell this incredible story. And um, I began at that moment, you know, in 2012. I mean, that's when the seed was planted. And the, the book is coming out. Um, uh, the, the official launch date is February 6th. So it uh, took many years. It took a long time to really put the thing, put the, the entire story together into a coherent narrative that people can understand all the different aspects and why this is such an egregious injustice. Right, right. Now, you mentioned your first book, uh, The General's Son, and uh, which received uh, tremendous uh, responses from uh, the likes of Alice Walker, Ralph Nader, Seymour Hirsch, Naomi Wolf, and Jim Miles. Um, would you tell the Radio Slam family a little bit, give them a little bit of, of your background, exactly who uh, Miko Pellet is? So The General Son uh, is uh, the first book that I wrote. Um, the full title is The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Mm-hmm. So I am an Israeli, and growing up as an Israeli, you don't know that there is a Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the title of my book suggests, my father was a general uh, in the Israeli army. I come from a very patriotic Zionist family. My grandparents, Some of my grandparents and my uncles and aunts were involved in high level of the Zionist movement and the establishment of the State of Israel and important posts within the State of Israel. Um, so that was me growing up. Um, and then the journey that I took was, as an Israeli growing up and thinking that I live in a country called Israel, and I'm part of this unique group um, of people who are Jewish and returned to their land after 2,000 years in what I believed was really a miracle, uh, and I embarked on a, on, on a journey, which is not very long because it's a small country and Palestinians are only a few minutes away from Israeli communities, Jewish communities, regardless of where you are in the country. And I realized that the sphere and the environment in which I grew up was completely, completely different, entirely different. Everything from the amounts of water that we get to the laws under which we live, completely, entirely different that between the we, what I grew up with and what Palestinians um, experience when they where they live, and again, it's only minutes away. You're always almost always across the street from a Palestinian uh, neighborhood, a Palestinian community, right. and, and that drove me deeper and deeper into Palestine, into this whole question of what is Palestine, what is Israel, what does it mean to be an Israeli. Uh, the conclusion that I reached is that the whole idea of Israel has no legitimacy because it's a settler colonial project. It's founded on racism, it's founded on the idea that one people have more rights or should have more rights than other people, that it's okay to take somebody's land because you may have a claim that goes back 3,000 years, which is, you know, absurd. Um, And so today I'm in a place where even though I have this background, I refer to the country as Palestine because I believe that's a legitimate name and that's a legitimate identity of the country. And people like myself, I see as the whites in South Africa. You know, they're part of the country because they were born there, and that's there are whites in South Africa. They don't, they're not organically from there, but they were brought in. They're the descendants of settlers and racists, but now they're there. And I think Israeli Jews like myself as the same thing. We're part of the landscape now, 
And um, I believe our job is, our duty, and when I say our, I mean all people of conscience, mm -hmm. is to make way for Palestine to become a real democracy with equal rights. So we don't have this, uh, the reality that exists there today. And as I'm speaking to you today, two good friends of mine have their children arrested, you know, 16 and 17-year-olds um, arrested by, the, by, by Israeli forces, their homes raided. Uh, one is a boy, one is a girl, um, and they've been, um, you know, arrested because their fathers are prominent uh, human rights defenders and activists in Palestine. So the, the reality is there is very, very severe. It's become more severe since Trump's declaration on Jerusalem, which yes. I think was, was, was to be expected. Um, and uh, I believe that we all need to fight as hard as we can to bring about a real democracy with equal rights and end this um, this brutality and this persecution of Palestinians. And the interesting thing is that the second book, Injustice, is all about the persecution of Palestinians, although in a different context, but still the persecution of Palestinians in this new country that they came to um, because they were forced out of Palestine, or their, their, their parents and grandparents were forced out of Palestine. And why does this persecution continue here? Why is there Islamophobia here? Why is there this deep anti-Arab sentiment in America? So one book kind of follows the footsteps of the other, just expands the story a little bit. Mm. So the close, well, not the close, but the disruption of the Holy Land Foundation uh, was that a? Do you do you point to that as a a, a critical uh, destabilizing uh, event for Palestinians? Well, I think it was um, from what I've learned, from what I've seen, having spoken to many many people in. The, the Arab and Muslim community here in the United States, um, it was it was a shock. It was a terrible trauma. I mean, these um, this was the largest Muslim charity in America. It was highly respected, highly trusted. It received accolades from everybody, international organizations, national organizations, local organizations, because they did a lot of work within the U.S. as well. Whenever there was... Um, you know, if there were floods or, or, or earthquakes or the Oklahoma City bombing. I mean, they're always there to help. And, of course, internationally and with Palestine. And their impact was, was very powerful. People trusted them. Mm -hmm. And although the taking down of the Holy Land Foundation came about at, right after 9-11, because they were an easy target, they were the obvious, uh, an obvious target, the, the, really the, they began to undermine their credibility in the early 1990s. It was in the early 1990s that their credibility was being undermined, um, I believe as a result of work mostly by the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. Um, and uh, the FBI began investigating them. The IRS began looking into revoking their not-for-profit status. Their offices in Jerusalem were being raided. Their offices in other parts of Palestine were being raided by the Israelis. Uh, they were shut down by the Israelis, and this is throughout the 90s. Mm -hmm. And then 9-11 gave, almost gave the, um, the okay for the U.S. government to act, and it was December of, of 2000, you know, right after 9-11, um, that George Bush closed them down with a, an executive order, and nobody thought it was going to be anything serious. People thought, well, you know, that was a mistake. Why? Because all of their work was above board. Mm -hmm. All of the paperwork, all of their accounting, everybody knew exactly every penny where it went, and nothing went to terrorism. The, the charge was that they were 
was material support for terrorist organization, material support for Hamas. And there was no evidence at all, not even the slightest evidence, that any of the money was going to Hamas. Uh, quite the opposite. In other words, every penny was accounted for and could be followed all the way to Palestine and to the exact, exactly the place where it went. Um, so nobody thought, so there was a civil suit and everybody thought they were going to win. And, and suddenly the civil suit comes and goes and, and the government and the, and, and the judge does not accept their evidence and they mm. cannot enter their evidence and it doesn't make any sense why would they not allow them to to enter into evidence all the evidence that they had that proves that they were doing everything right and from that point on you know several years later there's a criminal trial and then hung jury another criminal trial and they're all found and they're all convicted and now they're all in, in federal prison um so it was a slippery slope but it was obvious that it was more than just the government trying to round up, you know, the usual suspects and to see if everything was really okay. It was a targeted operation to bring them down because they represented um, so many good things. And so, and, and, and whoever it was, the ADL or the government of Israel and pro-Israeli groups did not want to have a positive, um, you know, well-respected Muslim Palestinian organization thriving in the United States. Can you tell the Radio Islam family some of the things that the um, excuse me that the Holy Land Foundation was responsible for? Well, uh, the list goes on and on and on. They were, like I said, right after 9/11, they were there. Floods, um, uh, earthquakes around the world, they were there. They contributed in Albania to refugees. Um, they were in Turkey. They were in Chechnya. They were, of course, in Palestine. They had massive programs for orphans. They had they built um, schools. They had built libraries. They um, supported the families of prisoners. And, of course, in Palestine, both the issue of uh, prisoners and the issue of orphans is severe because of the violence. Palestinians have been targeted, and, and there are so many families that have uh, their, their breadwinners in prison um, because there's so many political Palestinian political prisoners held by the Israelis. Um, in Gaza, they were, when they closed down, the UN, a UN report demonstrated clearly how uh, the needy, you know, the, the, there was a need that they were, that they were fulfilling, that suddenly there was a big gap. Um, and there was a big problem there because so many poor people in refugee camps and so forth uh, were not receiving the aid, were not receiving the food, were not receiving um, the, the, the clothing and the school supplies and so on and so forth, the, the medical supplies that, that the Holy Land was, was uh, providing. Um, so the list goes on and on and on. And, and, and um, one of the things that was done in the, the, the prosecution was trying to show is that by helping orphans, they were supporting terrorism, that they were encouraging terrorism. Mm. And in the trial, they had a terrorism expert, Matthew Levitt, who was in D.C., actually explaining how, by supporting the orphans, they were encouraging fathers to go out and commit active acts of terrorism, particularly uh, suicide attacks. And the defense showed the list of orphans, and none of them became orphans because their fathers had anything to do with terrorism, you know, I mean, they showed clearly because they could see each and every child, what happened, the cause of death of the father, how much money they received, and so on. They had detailed accounts of everything. Um, but it didn't matter how hard the defense worked. It just, they were not able to, uh, I mean, they were able to, to create doubt enough in the first jury, in the first trial, 
in the second trial, they were all convicted. So they did a lot of good all over the world here in the U.S. Um, and, and particularly, of course, in, in Palestine. Hmm. So you mentioned um, you mentioned that during that first trial that they had evidence that they were not allowed allowed to present. Has has that right. something that has been looked into? Uh, uh, is or or is that something that just kind of happened and people just moved on well, past it? It, it, it. I mean, all they they went to they appealed all of this, um, and so with the law, the, the initial with the civil trial in the very beginning, um, they went to the appellate court, and the and the appellate court said, yes, you're right, this is wrong. The judge should have allowed them to uh, present their evidence. However, this was not a normal case. They said, if this was a normal case, then yes, this was this would have been counted. Uh, as something uh, to look into. But because this was an issue of national security, the appellate court upheld the ruling of the judge. This happened with a criminal case as well. Really? Um, they, uh, the, 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 the prosecution were allowed, you know, were, were, given, were given an allowance to demonstrate and show things that had nothing to do with the trial. Terrorism, suicide bombing, 9-11, all kinds of things that had absolutely nothing to do nothing to do with the work of Hoyland Foundation. Um, the vast majority, they, they were, their phones were tapped for, for more than a decade. Mm. Um, but they were not given access to the transcripts because all of the transcripts became classified and the government only declassified parts of the transcripts which they decided to declassify. So the defendants didn't even have access to all of the information that was presented against them. Then the prosecution brought two anonymous Israeli intelligence officers. This is the first time in the history of the United States that anonymous uh, foreign agents were allowed to come and testify as expert witnesses um, and remain anonymous. And so really they could not confront their accusers. So all of this came up in the appellate court, in the appeal, because, of course, after they were convicted, they went to appeal. And the appellate court said, you know, that's right, these were mistakes. This should not have happened. However, they said this was harmless. Mm. But it wasn't harmless because the first trial was a mistrial. The second trial, they were all convicted. So it was not harmless. But for some reason, because this was, you know, under the category of terrorism and because the um, the entire country really, after 9-11, there was this has been existing in a state of hysteria, um, they couldn't get a fair trial. And the lawyers, one after the other, said this to me. And these were serious veterans of, 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 of the law. These were serious, serious. They had a really good team of lawyers. And they, they all said they were, there was not a chance in the world that these five good men, whose names I haven't said yet, I'd, I'd like to mention their names, Please. five good men could get uh, a fair trial in, in, in a court of law in the United States, particularly not in the Northern District of Texas. Um, now, their names are, and I'm sure many of the listeners have heard the names and know them, um, Shukri Abu Bakr and Hassan Elashi, each one of them received 65 years in federal prison. And Mufid Abdul Qadir, who received 20 years in federal prison. Uh, Abdurrahman Arudeh from New Jersey, from Patterson, received 15. And Muhammad Al Mazain, Abu Ibrahim Al Mazain, who received also 15 years uh, in federal prison. And I visited all but one, all but Hassan Elashi. For some reason, the prison authorities will not allow me to visit him. I visited all the other ones. Um, what's incredible is their faith. What's incredible is how deep their faith is. 
they realize that they're political prisoners. They realize that this is a, this is a terrible injustice. Mm-hmm. But uh, they are devoutly, devoutly Muslim. They take their religion uh, and the challenges that their life has presented them um, as as you know a decree from from God and something that they are going to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, they teach, they pray, they they do everything that good men will do in these environment in this environment. But not just good men; good men with an incredibly strong spirit. And every time I visit them or or speak to them or, or communicate with them by email. I'm just amazed at the power of their, uh, the strength of their, of their spirit and their faith and how they, they take this incredible injustice. I mean, for anybody to be in prison, you can imagine, is horrible. Right. Even if you're guilty, to be in prison is horrible. Mm-hmm. But to be innocent, completely innocent, not only innocent, but these were good men, good family men. These are men who did everything they could, everything they could do to help others. And they were targeted in such a vicious way, and to still maintain your spirit and maintain your optimism um, is very is is, is 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 really quite remarkable. So there's a very very sad personal story here as well, which I touch on in the book because I think people need to appreciate the personal story. And then there's a story of the community that was brought down, and then there's a story of Israel-U.S. relations, which have everything to do, I believe which are really behind the taking down of the Holy Land Foundation. So there's all these different levels. Now, you mentioned, um, you said that you're, you're an Israeli who yes. refers to uh, Israel as Palestine. Yes. And also pointing out the, well, what some refer to uh, as a modern-day apartheid. Yes. Um, and that, that the only or that a solution or the solution that you see is a is really is a one state solution, yes. a democratic state. Yes. Now, do yes. you do you feel like and I'm asking this without looking at the the media um, media coverage or the voices that we hear on the media that don't really push this uh, as an as a viable uh, idea, uh, a one state solution. Do you feel like aside from what the media uh, portrays that? That there are more uh, Israelis in uh, in Palestine that would agree with that. They would agree with me, absolutely yes. not. <laughs> but you know, privileged societies rarely are willing to give up their privilege uh, willingly. Right. They have to be forced to do so. You know, the whites in South Africa didn't decide one day they were going to give up apartheid. They were forced to do so as a result of. Uh, international pressure, isolation, boycott, divestment, and sanctions that was apply, apply, applied uh, on South Africa. And basically, uh, apartheid was on its knees, had nowhere to go, and there was no choice. And so they called for free and fair elections, released Nelson Mandela and the other freedom fighters from prison, and that was the end of apartheid. And I see the same process taking place with Palestine. The boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or like the BDS movement, which you mentioned earlier, is, is, is getting stronger and is very, very effective. Um, I think that the violence that we see, that we've seen over the, the past, you know, seven decades, but really over the past maybe 20 years, the increasingly increasing violence, and particularly now after Trump's declaration on Jerusalem, and I'm talking about the violence that's being per, uh, perpetrated against the Palestinians by the Israelis, right. um, is, is, is bringing things to a head. And really the entire country is one state. I mean, all of Palestine is one state. It's governed by the state of Israel, by the government of Israel. It's just that I get to live under kind of 
democratic liberal laws because I'm an Israeli Jew. Mm-hmm. Palestinians live under entirely different laws. They do not have the same the same rights, and they're not. We're not equal under the law over there. Right. Um, that needs to be changed. Uh, the, the the struggle is to bring about full equality uh, and uh, and uh, and and uh, compensation for the seven decades of suffering and the return of the refugees. I believe that is the the way forward. And I think it, I mean people think it's it's not realistic, but you know what is realistic? We make things realistic or not realistic. I don't think uh, this violent uh, regime is sustainable. I don't think what Israel is doing is sustainable. And it's immorally repugnant as well, but it's also not sustainable. You know, there there seems to be a history, uh, at least within the past 60 years or so, um, of the economic impact or the weight of, of money on on social change. You know, looking back at the Montgomery bus, uh, bus boycott, uh, exactly. to apartheid um, in South Africa, <clears throat> and now uh, BDS been employed as a, a strategy for social change and equality yeah. uh, in Israel. Um, and do you see a, a timeline, um, you know, in, in, in your mind as, as when when you think things would actually come come to bear? Well, I know that over the last five years there have been changes that nobody could have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Now, on the ground, life for Palestinians is becoming harder, and the violence perpetrated by Israel is becoming more pronounced and more brutal. At the same time, support for Israel on the grassroots popular level is, is, is waning, is becoming weaker. Mm-hmm. More and more people uh, around the world, both in the U.S. and in Europe and other parts of the world, are listening to the Palestinian voice and are calling for justice in Palestine and realizing really that the only way to achieve justice in Palestine is for Israel to make way for a real democracy. So uh, so if, if the trend continues, and I believe it not only will continue, I believe it will become stronger, I believe in the next five to ten years we're going to see major changes in that direction, um, if not entire entire change and, and, and a real, and a real uh, free Palestine, which, which means which means a, a real democratic state with total freedom for Palestinians. I believe that is, I believe within the next five to ten years, that is almost inevitable. Okay. Well, Radio Islam family, we've been talking with Miko Pellet, uh, Israeli writer, human rights activist, uh, living in the U.S., and he's author of uh, two books, uh, The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and his most recent book, which is Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land, Foundation 5. Uh, the book describes the persecution and then the closure of what was America's largest Muslim charity organization, the Holy Land Foundation, and the subsequent trials and convictions of five Palestinian Muslim Americans. Um, if you'd like to uh, get more information about him, you can go to his website, which is mikopellet.com, uh, and you can get more information. Uh, can they purchase the books there as well? Um, not yet, because it's not actually out yet. Amazon is already selling it as a, as a pre-order. But I want to add that um, the official launch is going to be uh, January 6th. Okay. And if anybody wants, and we're putting together kind of a book tour right now, if any, any Muslim organizations, masajid, uh, community centers, if anybody wants to um, organize a talk, organize a book, a book talk and a book signing, uh, to just uh, go on my website, mikopella.com, uh, there's a form there, and they can um, ask for information about that because we're putting it together now. And I really believe that the Muslim community um, in the United States deserves to, you know, the first dibs at this because this is um, 
this is really their 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 story and and, and, and their issue. Well, um, thank so you I'll be so much. Everywhere, but but if anybody's interested, then that's the place to go ahead and and, and contact contact me. Okay, thank you so much, Miko. Uh, and we give you the salams. Assalamualaikum.